Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jennifer Kaplan about her book, Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials, which came out this year in March with Wayne State University Press. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you. Jennifer Kaplan is the Jewish Foundation of Cincinnati Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Cincinnati. She received a dual BA in Theater Studies and Religious Studies from Wellesley College before receiving a Master's of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School and a PhD in Religious Studies from Syracuse University. She works primarily on American religion and popular culture with a focus on American Judaism. She's currently working on a new book project entitled Unmasked, Jewish Identity in Comic Books, as well as co-editing a forthcoming volume on global Jewish humor. So our book today, Funny You Don't Look Funny, interrogates the term or notion of Jewish humor in uh, American comedy by looking at the trends and attitudes of four generations chronologically. Uh, But before we explore the book and your research in it further, I'd first like to ask you just a little bit about yourself, if you could tell us what brought you to the field of religious studies generally, to Jewish studies more specifically, um, and also to humor and popular culture as well. Um, sure, yeah, I'm happy to uh, to go into some of that. Um, so I came to all of these things kind of organically and accidentally, or if not accidentally, not on purpose. Um, I had not intended to major in either religious studies or theater studies uh, when I got to college. Um, Although, interestingly, in hindsight, my mother had been a religious studies major when she started college and my dad was a professional actor. So I probably should have figured I was going to end up with that combination. Uh, But it somehow I didn't I didn't think that was going to be my path. And uh, my sophomore year, the fall semester of my sophomore year, I took an introduction to religion in America, and it just sort of like blew my mind in that way that I, I had that instinctive, um, the things you don't talk about in polite company are politics and religion kind of thing. And, and so then I get to this classroom, and that's all we were talking about all day, and it was like phenomenal. Uh, and so that 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 hooked me and that got me in not only to the study of religion, but the, the study of American religion in particular. Uh, and then as I picked up the theater major as well, uh, a little bit later, the the overlap between my interests and, and kind of trying to tie together the pop culture side of things that I was interested in and the religious studies side of things that, that I, I narrowed that more and more over the course of my studies. So when I got to Harvard, um, I was still sort of broadly seeing myself as an Americanist and, and I was still doing a lot of work in like American uh, Protestantism and American Christianity and popular culture. And so it really wasn't until I got to Syracuse that I began to sort of narrow that into Jewish studies and and really think about um, American Judaism and popular culture, which again, I should have realized that's where I was going to end up because of who I am as a person. But it 
I, I just kept thinking that my my scholarly self was somehow going to be different than like my soul. And yet that was foolish. They say research is me search. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Does that so you did theater studies as well? Does that mean that you were also a practitioner of theater and performance and, and comedy as well? I, I am not a practitioner of comedy in the stand up sort of sense. Um, people ask me you know, all the time. They suggest like, oh, you know, we should just have you do stand up. It's like, no, no, I, I am not. I am not funny or gifted in that way. Um, I, I am. a I was at least I haven't performed in a few years now, um, but I, I was a performer and I did do uh, a lot of like musical comedy and um, and common plays and things like that. But I, I have never been a comedian per se. So when it comes to then your research on humor specifically, I was wondering what the spark was for for this particular book and and maybe more specifically what you in your book project wanted to respond to in terms of defining what Jewish humor even is. It's sort of this term that a lot of us know and I think we can identify it when we see it, but it's hard to describe. Yeah, no, exactly. Um so there are, there are a couple of different things that led to that. There, first of all, the book, as many first books are, came out of my dissertation, um, which was in a lot of ways actually quite different. Uh, it was structurally and conceptually very different, but it was still about uh, Jewish humor in general. And um, I, I sort of like to say that that dissertation came about because I threw a scholarly temper tantrum. Um, because when I when I was starting my PhD, um, as I mentioned, I was I was still sort of seeing myself more broadly as an Americanist, and I I really wanted to. Um, I took a lot of uh, coursework in, in independent studies, even in things in uh, sociology of religion and um, kind of like religious data collection. And I really wanted to write a dissertation on second generation members of new religious movements. Um, and I was thinking that I wanted to, because I was interested in the way that the, the children who are born into a religious group take it in different directions than their parents who were this initial convert generation to something that was new. Um, and so I wanted to look at uh, Messianic Jews and I wanted to look at um, potentially the Nation of Islam. I wasn't sure about that. And, and I wanted to look at Scientology uh, because I grew up in Water, Florida, which is where the headquarters of the Church of Scientology is. So it's something that I've always been um, sort of surrounded by and interested in. And they wouldn't let me do it. Um, I, I could do it if I dropped the Scientology piece, but they wouldn't let me do it with Scientology for political reasons. Um, and I just wasn't willing to drop that part because that's the part I thought was most interesting. So instead, I was like, fine, I'm going to propose the most ridiculous dissertation uh, that there's no way they're ever going to let me write about this. So instead, I turned in this proposal that says, fine, that I want to write a dissertation all about Jewish comedy. And they were like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so surprise, surprise, uh, they ended up, you know, letting me. I just thought it sounded like way too much fun to for a dissertation topic. You know, I had other colleagues who were writing about like 
Holocaust memory and suicide rates. And here I am proposing to write about comedy for, you know, three years. Um, so it, it never occurred to me to pick a dissertation topic that was fun. Um, the other thing, though, and, and more to the second part of your question in what I was trying to respond to in my sort of intervention, uh, I feel like I am perfectly placed generationally and and the book as you know we'll talk about is is really based on this idea of identifying with your generation i was born just at the right moment to be one of the people who grew up surrounded by both the concept of and a certain animosity toward the idea of quote-unquote cultural judaism um so in in the 80s when all of the demographic research started showing that the Jewish intermarriage rate had spiked and we had those first panicked results that said that Jewish intermarriage was over 50%, which we now know those surveys were a little flawed and the rate was probably never quite that high, but it was, it did jump all of a sudden into the forties. Um, whereas it had previously been quite low. Uh, and everybody started to panic and, try to figure out why intermarriage was so high and what did that mean? And, you know, did that mean that American Jews were going to disappear within two generations? Uh, and so I was one of the, I, I was one of the children who that was sort of my Jewish worldview in a sense. And that felt like also my lived experience uh, that, you know, we went to, we went to, I, you know, I went to religious school. I didn't have a bat mitzvah, though, um, because I, turns out I'm real bad at languages at, you know, 10. I didn't really understand why. I just knew I hated going to Hebrew school and my parents finally let me quit. Um, I was confirmed, though, because I'm, that was in English. That was fine. Um, but, you know, we, we went to high holidays and we would occasionally go to services. So we weren't entirely, you know, cultural, whatever that means. But most of my... Most of the things that I did in my life that I felt Jewish about were interacting with forms of culture, whether it was food or movies or TV shows, you know, that, that those were the things that made me feel Jewish. And those were the things that I felt like I did, you know, not that anybody could watch an episode of Seinfeld. But when I watched an episode of Seinfeld, I felt like I was connecting with it on a different level than my non-Jewish friends and peers. Um, so I I spent so much of my life getting this messaging that there was something wrong with being Jewish in that way. And in fact, that there was something potentially dangerous about being Jewish in that way. So just at the moment where I proposed this dissertation topic and started to think about what I wanted to do with this and how I wanted to do it, there was a think piece that ran in RS um, that was titled Beware the American Cultural Jew. Um, it ran in 2013. And it was basically saying that American cultural Jews were going to cause the death of global Judaism. Um, so at that point now, I was an adult. I was in my PhD. I was thinking more critically about these things. And I was like, okay, yeah, 
this this is this is the messaging that I've been hearing since I was a child. Here we are 30 years later. We do not have fewer Jews than we had 30 years ago. You know, th this has not caused an imminent collapse of global Jewry. And also maybe now I'm in a position to start to say something back to this and, and to point out the reasons why this is the wrong way to be thinking about culture and engagement with culture and that cultural Jews, I mean, first of all, that that's like a completely misleading label and also that they are not this dangerous enemy. So, so that sort of became the thing that I wanted to address. Um, simultaneously then in the last, let's say 15 years or so, um, there's been a, a lot of interest in the topic of Jewish humor. There have been several recent books on Jewish humor in the last like, 10 years, even. Uh, so it certainly was something that, you know, I was entering into a space where other people were already um, struggling with this same inability to define it. It's it's an ineffable sort of thing. As you said, you know, you, you kind of you feel instinctively like, you know, a, that it exists, and B, that you could point to something, or that you could list examples of it. But if you try to then go to any one of those examples and define why it is, you're, you're not going to be able to. Uh, and, you know, luckily for me, uh, there were a couple of other scholarly monographs about Jewish humor that came out before mine who had already proved the impossibility of defining it. So I didn't really even have to try like i say very early in my book like, i am not going to define jewish humor for you because nobody can and here's other people who have already tried and said that they can't so let's let's just not exactly and that very sensation of sort of having a sense that you're you're in on the joke is exactly one of the points that you touch on i think it was it hobbes's theory of the sort of in-group humor of the sort of idea that you you're engaging with this implicit cultural knowledge but um or, or that the the humor is heightened by virtue of of having this cultural basis, which might be humorous also to an out group, but not as as humorous to the in group. Well, and um, it's funny too because that that actually ends up working a couple of ways. So Hobbes called that um, superiority theory for humor, and so exactly as you say, it's like it, you recognize it's an inside joke. So like when I'm trying to explain it to people, I I use the example of like there's always going to be one or two kind of like semi-dirty adult jokes in Disney movies that like when you rewatch as as an adult you're like oh my god you know they let us watch this as children but those are there for the parents you know because they know the parents have taken their kids to the movie so they throw in a couple of like little offhand references or things that the the children are not going to get um but the parents will get and and that it'll make that funnier for the parents because they're laughing but there's like a um because they recognize that the kids don't get it. But there's a secondary effect of that as well, that if you are in a movie theater um, watching a movie and everybody starts laughing except for you, you often will start laughing yourself in part because you don't want to make it seem as though you don't get the joke. So like there, there's this other way that you can kind of tell that this must be an inside joke because certain people are laughing, but you don't get it, but you laugh anyway. So that particular mode of humor, it like it's very um, 
it's very effective. Like it, it actually gets lots of different people laughing in lots of ways, even if they don't actually get the joke. Yeah. And I think that dynamic is particularly interesting when we're talking about in-groups and out-groups when we're speaking of a minority in, in the American population, uh, a, a portion of the population that is actually quite small, but has this outsized influence on what we might even term more generally American humor or staples of American humor, like Seinfeld, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's that's Mel Brooks's uh, point is on happy birthday, Mel Brooks. It was his birthday yesterday. Um you know that that he doesn't even think Jewish humor exists. He thinks what we're talking about is just American humor, and, and American Jew- humor has just been defined by Jews. I wanted to go back to um, the through line of generations. That it's the through line of this book, but also when you were talking about how you came to your dissertation topic, um, you, you talked about second generation was your your point of interest in your initial proposal idea. Um, so I wanted you to tell us a little bit about uh, why you have this interest in in the examining generations particularly. And for example, you discuss how the silent generation is the only generation in this book that doesn't identify itself as, as such or didn't identify itself as such at, at the time. Um, what is the significance of that? And, and, and why do you, um, what, what do you find so particularly interesting about looking at these generational shifts? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, the the dissertation was not structured around these generations. It, it wasn't built this way. The the dissertation um, was structured around the the three legged stool idea of Torah, God, and Israel. Um, and the the generational bit was it was sort of there, but in a different way. Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that I I was struggling with nomenclature because um, when I was talking about people in the book uh, and the millennials were not there in, in the dissertation, I mean, um, when I was talking about people in the dissertation, I could refer to somebody as a member of Gen X and I could refer to somebody as a baby boomer. And then I was referring to the older people. Um, so like Philip Roth and Joseph Heller and Malamud, I was referring to them as the second generation because that in in American Jewish studies, that's how we talk about that generation of people. Um, it just whether or not they themselves are specifically second generation Americans, we describe those folks as the second generation um, based on the the timing of that big wave of Eastern European Jewish immigration that happened between the late 1880s and the early 1920s. So these these people who were born in the 1920s and 1930s, we call them the second generation. Uh, and I didn't like that because I felt like I was I was mixing my apples and oranges in a sense, that, uh, that I'm using this specifically Jewish studies identification for one group, and then I was using the generic American sociological classification for these other two groups. And, and it just, it didn't sit right with me when I was writing the dissertation, but I also didn't know how to get out of that because I didn't realize at that time that the silent generation even had a name. Um, it, it, it got skipped over in a lot of ways. You know, we go from Tom Brokaw's greatest generation who are there fighting two world wars 
to the baby boom. And there was a generation in between, but nobody really, there's a reason they're called the silent generation. Uh, and so when I started thinking about what I thought was valuable in the dissertation and, and what I really wanted to highlight for the book, what story I wanted to tell for the book, I realized that for me, the most, one of the most interesting stories, at least, was that move from American Jews self-identifying and being identified externally with their Jewish generational cohort and and being described with their distance from immigration to the United States to Jews both self-identifying and being identified from the outside with their American generational cohort, that this was really part of a story of how American Jews changed their priorities and, and changed the way that they thought about their relationship. It's almost the move from people describing themselves as Jewish Americans to describing themselves as American Jews. Like what, which adjective are you putting first? And second generation describes Jewish Americans, whereas I think baby boom Gen X millennial that describes American Jews. Um, so that's that's why the, the generations that became the kind of spine of the book, so to speak, because I ended up feeling like that was actually the most interesting and compelling um, finding to come out, or one of the most interesting findings to come out of this, um, was that there, there was this actual real shift from members of the silent generation who, as I say, and you said, would never have told you they were members of the silent generation because I don't think the label had even been invented at that point to baby boomers who may think of themselves, especially if they're second generation Americans, they may still think of themselves that way. If they're third generation, it's a little less likely, but also recognize that they are members of the baby boom to the time we get, by the time we get to Gen X, these folks who are, they're just going to tell you, if you say, what generation are you? They're going to say Gen X. They're not going to say I'm a fourth generation American. If you ask them specifically that question, they may be able to count backwards and say, I guess I'm a fourth generation American. But like, I don't think that's anybody's first impulse when you ask what generation are you? Um, they'll say, you know, I'm Gen X. So that that that's what started to really resonate for me as, as I was reworking the information and the data and thinking about how to present it for the book. And when we look at the silent generation, they sort of come out as this, this liminal generation. So I was wondering if you could take a moment to talk about how this manifests in the silent generation's Jewish humor in terms of Philip Roth and, and Woody Allen. What is this sort of tension between um, experience and immersion in in a Jewish culture and an anxiety toward it and a rejection of Jewish ritual? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I, I think liminal is it is a good descriptor for them um, because the the hallmarks of the silent generation uh, culturally, in, in broader cultural sense, is that. For the most part, they didn't fight in either world war. Some of the very oldest members of the silent generation were, you know, 
18 to 20 by the time World War II got going. So some of them did fight in World War II. Um, but moreover, they were the children of the Great Depression. Um, so they had a childhood that was very much defined by this incredible shared trauma that the nation had in a sense and then punctuated by World War II, which was a national trauma, of course, but had it, it had different resonances. So they moved from something that is hitting everybody the same, in a sense, in the Great Depression, to something where they are going to feel they're going to feel their Jewish difference um, in other ways because World War II was it, uh, was a different experience for for Jews than it was for non-Jews, and they came out of that with what I what I found in my research is that they came out of that with a a real sense of the power and the importance of Jewish collective identity and a real distrust of institutions. Um, and the thing that I like to remind people is that, you know, we think about the counterculture of the 1960s and we identify that with the baby boomers, but the baby boomers were at that point teenagers to, you know, the oldest or maybe 20 something. So they were the consumers of the counterculture. They were not the producers of that counterculture material, of the protest music, of the literature. That's the, that's what the silent generation was producing. Um, you know, Philip Roth publishes Goodbye Columbus in 1959, and he was, you know, young at that point. So, so the folks who are like making that counterculture stuff that the baby boomers were then consuming they were silent generations. So all of that anti-establishment, don't trust institutions, like all of that messaging, that's coming to them from the generation before them, the generation who saw like the absolute economic collapse of the country and the generation that saw the United States government do a terrible job of protecting the Jews of Eastern Europe and helping refugees get out of Eastern Europe. Uh, so, so the silent generation have every reason to think that institutions, including institutional religion, are really worthless at best and dangerous at worst. Um, so that's that's the thread that I found in their material is that they they are very interested in the idea of Jews and in the need for the collective identity of Jews to exist. They are protective of that in a sense, uh, but they really are not interested in saying anything nice or soft about uh, religious practice, about ritual. Their experience of the Jewish community was, was just that. It was community. It was not about ritual or institutional practices. And so then looking at these consumers of the culture produced by the silent generation, what was it that the baby boomers adopted, but then um, adapted from the previous generation? How how did the generation in which the baby boomers grew up affect the type of humor that they produced? What was their sort of shift in focus? Yeah, that that's the... That's the interesting thing about the baby boomers. Um, and of course, they're still 
around. Well, for that matter, the silent generation is still around. I did just wish Mel Brooks a happy 97th birthday. Um, so, you know, the folks are, folks are still hanging on. Uh, the, as the uh, baby boomers begin to be the drivers of production in the 1970s, um, they, they mostly ate the same kind of stuff that they had been watching and reading and seeing uh, in, in the 1960s. Um, so it, it, in the 70s and the 80s, um, it has a lot of the same uh, kind of anti, I don't want to call it anti-religious because that has, I think, a different valence, but kind of anti-sacred kind of thing. They're, they're not really interested in um, holding up ritual practices as being important in and of themselves. Um, so they're, they're, the humor that they produce in, in the uh, in the book, I, I sort of give examples from like 1970s era Saturday Night Live, for example, things like that. Um, it looks an awful lot like what had come before it, but just turned up to 11 in a sense. Uh, I, you know, after the 1960s, in addition to or because of, I guess, all of the cultural unrest that they had, um, that we had with the, the Vietnam War protests and, and everything that everything that went on in that era, um, there were, I mean, that's where we see the beginning of the, the described culture wars, right? So, you know, their, their language was more, they were more willing to use it to see language. It was harsher, um, but it was effectively the same blueprint that their parental generation or that the previous generation had handed down to them and it didn't start to shift until we get to the end of the 20th century and into the early 21st century when baby boomers were still producing a lot of content but when gen x had begun to um be ascended and and start to start to drive uh, a lot of the culture production and we see gen x having a very different outlook to things than the silent generation had. Um, and so at that point, the baby boomers start to shift and look, instead of looking like the generation before them, they start to look like the generation after them, which really just means, I don't mean that to say that like the baby boomers have no identity of their own necessarily. It's really more that they're just very savvy. And this is part of why so many of these baby boom comedians have had careers that have gone on for you know 40 50 plus years because they're able to adapt and and change what they're doing and they don't just keep putting out the same kind of comedy even after the culture has changed and wants different kinds of comedy so it i don't mean to say it's a bad thing that they resembled their the generation before them and then they started to resemble the generation after them it just means that they're smart mm. And and one tool that you use in the book to talk about the sort of moving target or the the shifting relationship of Judaism to these different generations or or to individuals who engage with Judaism and Jewish culture and their humor is this uh, thing theory, um, Bill Brown's. And I was wondering if you could expand on on um, yeah how Judaism gets thingified over time in different ways and how that was a useful 
useful methodological tool for you or a conceptual yeah. tool. I I love that as a tool. Um, that is something that played a, that's another something that played a bigger part in the dissertation, but is still present in the book. So Bill Brown, um, in, he writes mostly about um, like uh, literature and, and, and writing and, and culture. Um, but he, he developed this thing called thing theory. Um, and he has a book called things in which he expands on it. And it, it, it's, it essentially tries to define the difference between an object and a thing, uh, for, for lack of a better way to describe it based on whether a particular item is useful or not. Um, and so for my purposes, uh, and, you know, I, I give an example in the book that, like, let's say you have a car and your car has broken down and the mechanic tells you that the engine is dead and it's just total. That car is now a thing to you. It doesn't work. It's, it's broken. It doesn't fulfill its essential function. It is just dead weight sitting in your driveway. But if you give that car to a scrap heap and a visual artist goes and harvests the frame to make it part of Carhenge out in western Nebraska, to that artist, it is very much an, a, a viable object. It is not a thing. It is, it is exactly performing the function that they need it and want it to perform. So the same physical thing um, can be both a, a vital, useful object and a broken, useless thing to two different people. Uh, but also something that takes up space, right? Even when, right. when it's just a thing, it's still there. It's still, you know, God, it's taking up space in my driveway. What am I going to do with it? It occupies you in a way, nonetheless. Yeah. It's taking up driveway space. It's taking up mental energy. You're trying to figure out how you're going to get to work. I mean, you know, this this thing is it, it is a it is a drain on you in so many ways. Um, and I really saw resonances with the way that Brown lays out this thing theory to the changing relationship that these comedians seek to have to Judaism. So for the silent generation, where institutional Judaism, institutional religion is, as I said, worthless at best, dangerous at worst, that really felt like a thing to me. It is, it is something that is broken. It is not functioning the way it is supposed to. It is an artifact of a bygone era that is now dangerous to the people and is therefore something that really needs to be sent to the scrap heap um, and is, is concerning and is worrisome. Whereas for Gen X, um, and again, that's that's the major pendulum swing I see, is that the silent generation and Gen X essentially are immediately inverses of each other. For Gen X, religious Judaism is actually very vital. It has a very vital purpose. Not necessarily the same very vital purpose it would have had for Jews in, say, the 1800s, but it is a living thing. It is an important thing. It matters. Um, it has value. It's something that they want to protect as opposed to being something that they want to 
set fire to and launch into space like the silent generation wanted to do with religion. Um, so it it's this movement of Judaism from being very thingified, as I say in the book, um, by the silent generation to being reclaimed and made back into a a useful object by Gen X. The problem with this terminology is that if I want to thingify Judaism on one end, the corollary would be to objectify it on the other end, except that objectify has such specific connotations that it was very hard to to sort of figure out how I wanted to articulate that dichotomy um, without using objectification in a way that was going to make people think that I meant that negatively. Hmm. Um, and so what were some of the examples that you felt were most um, illustrative of this shift away from the negative thingification of Judaism to this shift in Gen X? Um, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite examples of it is the, I've, I've got two in the book that I really like, and they, they sort of really show it in the same way. Um, it's the the movie Kissing Jessica Stein. And then the book, This Is Where I Leave You by Jonathan Tropper. Um, so Kissing Jessica Stein, not a cinematic masterpiece, um, but a, a sort of fine early queer rom-com um, when Hollywood was still figuring, Hollywood is still figuring out how to do a good queer rom-com. Um, and, uh, you know, there are lots of things about this movie that are extremely formulaic. Um if you read the reviews of the film from when it premiered in, uh, I think, 2001, lots of them describe the character of Jessica Stein, Jennifer Westfeld's character, as being like essentially just a female Woody Allen character, that she's neurotic and she's awkward and she has trouble maintaining interpersonal relationships, um, you know, and, and she ends up accidentally starting to date a woman which, you know, is all fine for a while, but then they break up and she ends up with a man. And it, it's all sort of very, very paint by numbers. But for all that her character is extremely um, kind of trope-laden, there are these couple of moments in the film that humanize her and that keep her from being absolutely flat and two-dimensional and just a Woody Allen cut out. Um, and both of those moments center around Jewish ritual. Um, so we have this moment of uh, a family Shabbat dinner, and we have this moment at the, uh, the, the Jewish wedding of her sibling. Um, and, and those are the moments that gives the characters the space to be real and to be fully formed and anchor them in reality and, and keep them from being just like horrible humans for 90 minutes or however long the film is. Um, it, the, the religion and the interaction with Judaism and with rituals are the things that ground her. Um, and if that had been a kind of one-off, it would have been interesting, but I, I maybe wouldn't have felt like I was really seeing something. I was really seeing something there. Um, but Jonathan Tropper's novel, This Is Where I Leave You, does the exact same thing 
possibly even better um, because the characters in this book are even more terrible people than Jessica Stein is in her movie. Um, it, the, the novel, there, there, and there was a movie version of the novel. I don't talk about the movie version in my book because among other things, I feel like the movie version sucks a lot of the Judaism out of the story. Um, but I mean, this is a horrible family. Talk about succession is a family full of dysfunctional people who hate each other. Like Jonathan Tropper did that first. These people are doing just absolutely god awful things to each other all the time. Um, but the plot revolves around the fact that the patriarch of the family, the the book begins with him having died, and so the the kids are coming in. The, their mother says that their father's dying wish was that they sit shiva for him, which makes sense to nobody because their father had apparently not set foot in a synagogue in. 60 years, but they're told he wanted them to sit Shiva, so they all show up to sit Shiva. And, um, yeah, and it's all a disaster. And it turns out that was a lie anyway. But at the end, or towards the end, they go to um, synagogue. They go to services to um, to, to say Kaddish um, with the community at the end of the Shiva process. And the way that the narrator, the main character, describes it's almost a Durkheimian collective effervescence. The way he describes the experience, the emotional experience of standing there, hearing the congregation say the words of the Kaddish with him. And like it, it is literally described as a religious experience. And he says at the end of it, you know, he wishes that the moment would never end so you know here we've got this book of like absolutely horrible human beings who have been horrible to each other for 200 pages but the thing that keeps us from being able to act to, to completely throw them out and and just write them off as two-dimensional caricatures are these moments of ritual interaction and and he stands there in synagogue with the community saying Kaddish and he feels something. It seems like the only authentic thing that he feels in the entire book is, is this experience. And like, not in a way that he's going to become religious or, you know, go home and start going to synagogue every week. It's not that it's, it's not a story about becoming religious. It's a story about the value of, or it's a moment. It's about the value of, ritual and the whole thing as i say the like it turns out that the mother just made up the story about Adish because uh, shiva because she wanted the kids to all be together um but even that like e even there we have used the power of ritual to bring a family together and and they are maybe slightly less dysfunctional at the end than they were at the beginning um so that's that's the sort of thing that i saw propping up throughout these Gen X examples that like were so starkly different to the way that ritual worked in earlier material. And it seems in this case, the humor isn't found at the expense of ritual, but rather the humor is located in sort of these dyna familial dynamics or familial roles, which might indeed have some maybe Jewish tropes in them. Um, but on the other hand, the space of, of ritual is a place that that's not that's not the butt of jokes, but rather um, 
is is um, where there's a sort of resolution, where there's a sort of uh, solace. Yeah, you know, we talk about um, we talk about Vedic relief uh, because uh, we know kind of psychologically that people can't people can only feel pathos for so long. So you find all of these like heavy dramatic plays and operas and things like that that all have usually about two thirds of the way through will have this comedic character or a comedic song or something like that to break up the the tears um, so that then people can cry even harder for the final third of the of the show. And and I, I sort of coined the term dramatic relief for this opposite that that you you eventually stop laughing when it's the same joke over and over when it's this characters are making the same mistakes over and over like even if you found it funny to begin with you you can't you can't keep that laughter up for that long but these these religious ritual moments function as dramatic relief because they they change your orientation even if just briefly to allow you to then find the rest of it even funnier because you had that yeah it's the contrasts um, which then makes me want to go to your your closing chapter on millennials and and not to spoil it, but you do conclude that the kids are all right. Um, so I was wondering if you could sort of tell us about not only about the character of of millennial Jewish humor, but also what direction direction you see Jewish humor going from now on. Yeah, um, it, it it's a story that to to some extent is still to be written, and if I could have, and you know, if I could have waited another 10 years before I published this book, that chapter of millennials would be um, different and short and richer. And maybe, you know, maybe one of these days I'll put out a second edition that will be able to talk more about that. Um, Because uh, millennials, the oldest millennials right now are um, 40 or so, 40, 41. Um, I guess 42. And so they are they are right now poised to be the the people who are beginning to take over the industry and, and dominate the industry. Um, which is not to say that we don't have plenty of examples of millennial humor, and, and we do have some, and I, and I talk about some. Um, but they haven't they haven't put their stamp on comedy yet in a way that enables me to say with confidence what their relationship to this stuff looks like. But for the most part, or at least from this moment in time at, at this vantage, what I see in them is a a really exciting confidence um, in who they are as Jews and as people. And, and the reason I find that exciting is because that indicates to me that that primordial suit I talked about at the beginning that that formed who I am as a person where I spent the 80s and 90s almost subconsciously feeling bad about my Jewish identity because I liked Bagels and Locks and Marx Brothers movies and that wasn't that wasn't doing Judaism right um these kids grew up in a world where Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song had already happened. The Hanukkah song was, you know, revolutionary to me because it was expressing a kind of hip 
cool pride in Jewish identity that I had not previously experienced in, in a way of like standing there and saying, all of these people are Jewish and they're super cool and you're super cool too because you're Jewish. That's That was already de rigueur for them. That That is already the world into which they were born. Um, so it's it, it's kind of what I see in them is that they're able and willing to go back and forth on both of the poles. So like the, the Jewish corporate identity thing and the Jewish ritual thing, they can be very sacrilegious about it to, you know, in a manner of speaking, and they can be, they can express the value of it that, that they don't, they, they don't feel any need to, to protect, anything because to them Jewish identity is safe and Jewish identity is fine and it's cool and it, it they're they're far enough out from the Holocaust at this point that they're not existentially worried about the continued existence of Jews but neither do they have to kind of feel one way or another about doing Jewish ritual it, it's a thing that you might sometimes do and sometimes not do and, and that's fine so as I say, it's it's early um, and in another decade when there is more of a body of work that comes out of them being not the young upstarts anymore, but the, the establishment comedians, um, the full picture may look a little different. But for now, what I see from them is 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 very heartening and it's very exciting because to them, Jewish identity is not something that needs to be protected or worked around it, it's just it's very natural for them in a way that i i really really like i think about um i think about a throwaway line in one of the first season episodes it might even be the first episode first or second episode of crazy ex-girlfriend um where rebecca moves to california and she is kind of talking to her boss at the new law firm for the first time and he starts talking about how excited he is to have a Jew lawyer who is going to be smarter than his wife's Jew lawyer um, because he and his wife are going through a divorce. And Rebecca has this sort of like throwaway line that she's like, we're going to circle back to the Jew thing because that's a conversation we have to have. But and then, you know, she moves on and talks about the rest of it. And like, I just love both the casualness of that and the fact that she said it at all. If it had been uh, a 1990s sitcom, it would have been a thing where she wouldn't have said anything at all. And then we'd have a scene later where she's talking with her friends and be like, oh, my God, let me tell you this thing that my boss said. Yeah, But like Rebecca is more than happy to say, like, we're going to talk about this because that's not OK. But also she's able to just like roll past it. And that's that's so emblematic of where I see millennial Jewish identity being and and I love it. And you also get the sense, and this is now circling to how your research relates to your teaching, do you get the sense that your students are also actively watching this material, especially if you talk about Broad City and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Um, and if, you, if they weren't and you introduced this in your coursework, how do they respond? Um, they respond, they respond positively. Um, you know, I try the, the my Jewish humor course is one of the syllabuses that I, I feel like I tinker with the most 
because it is such a dynamically open canon of material. So I do constantly have to be rethinking and re-envisioning, especially the final, like the back half, um, the final third. Uh, so, you know, they're, they always get more excited and more engaged when we get to the stuff that they already know um, and that they feel a sort of ownership over. Um, so, yeah, that that is, uh, I mean, a couple of years ago, at least, that was Broad City, that was Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Now both of those shows have gone off the air. Um, so it's, uh, you know, we're moving even even further. And and I will say, I would be happy to revisit this book in 10 years and write a new concluding chapter about millennials. I don't know that I could then add a new, new final chapter on Gen Z. Maybe I have reached a point where I am too old, but I don't fully understand Gen Z humor. And like, I look at things like, um, and one of the things that I really like about very contemporary American Jewish humor is that it is increasingly diverse. Um, and I think that that is fantastic. But like, I watched the Eric Andre show and I don't get it. it it's like, I can recognize what he's doing, but I don't necessarily understand why he's doing it or why it's funny. Um, so I worry, I worry about the fact that the, the things that, in every, with every year that passes, the things that my students come in and give examples of, I am less and less able to recognize. And I did that this year for the first time. I asked them, uh, you know, when we started the course, I, I gave them basically this speech. I said, okay, you all are Zoomers. You, you are Gen C. I don't think I understand your humor. So your homework or, you know, Monday, or in this case, it was Tuesday, um, over the weekend, find something that you, that to you says, this is the humor of your generation and bring it to class. We're going to share them and talk about them. Um, and I thought that this was going to like give me an insight and help me begin to pierce the veil of Gen Z humor. What I got were just a lot of memes that I still don't understand and that they weren't really able to articulate why it was funny to them. They were just like, oh no, this is hilarious. And I'm like, but why is it hilarious? And they're like, I don't know. It just is. I was like, okay. Well, okay. Then I, I guess that's going to be a longer term project to to unpack that yeah. all. <laughs> exactly. And you know, the, the, they're just going to keep, keep getting younger every year. So I, yeah. it's the rest of my career. I can unpack that. Yeah, I get that. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but my final question I'd like to ask is if you could tell us a bit more about what you're currently working on that we mentioned at the top of the show. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited. I am about to start a year-long research fellowship, um, and I'm going to thank you. It's my very first academic leave, so I'm pretty stoked about it. Um, and I'm going to be researching and beginning writing a new book project um, that is currently titled Unmasked. Jewish identity in comic books. Um, although in truth, I'm thinking about changing that to Jewish identity in DC and Marvel comics. So it, it really is focused on those. Um, but it's it's going to be looking at both the phenomenon of the early again generation, kind of first generation of these um, 
comic book writers who were almost exclusively Jewish and none of the characters that they wrote were Jewish, although some of them have these kind of coded or hidden Jewish elements, but but none of them were explicitly Jewish. Um, we, re- we really don't get explicitly Jewish characters until we get into the 1980s um, and a new, a new crop of writers has taken over. And then some of those formative characters are eventually kind of retconned to be Jewish in the 90s and 2000s when non-Jewish writers have taken over the writing duties. Um, so it's telling that story, but then I'm also going to be looking at the the extended cinematic universes, the TV and movie um, universes of both the DC comic stuff and the Marvel comic stuff, and looking at the, the different Jewish characters that they've included, the reception histories of these different Jewish characters, the way audiences want certain characters to be Jewish, even if they're really sort of not. Um, you know, there was so much stuff when WandaVision aired a couple of years ago. Um, there was so much talk about like, oh, Wanda, she's, you know, she's this Jewish character and she's, she really isn't, but the, the internet was desperate to find ways, you know, the secret Jewish history of Wanda Maximoff. Um, so the, the book is going to kind of look at all of those various elements of the way that Jewish identity has come and gone and come back again. Uh, in these these different comic universes. Very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me uh, more about your research. Yeah, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Have a great day.